Let's get going tonight on our 30th lesson. This is if I am thinking ahead properly. The next to last lesson from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We have dealt with this now for 29 weeks, not 29 consecutive weeks, but for the last several months we've been with Paul. I've gained a new appreciation for Ephesians. I hope you have. I've been hearing from a lot of people who have been impacted by this journey, have looked forward to it. We've got, in fact, we have groups that are going through this with us in their small groups. I was in a meeting this summer um, with a group that was about 10 or 12 weeks behind us and were very excited about the journey. And um, so that's probably not the only place doing that, but um, that always excites me. This has been a, this was our first trip into Paul's letters with this group. Um, over the years, I've done it a lot on a podcast, done it a lot in teaching in different settings, but we had never done it for some reason here. And I think that's because I had such an emphasis on Jesus, the person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus for so long here. And then this year felt the turn to bring Paul into that a little bit. And in a way, even though Paul wrote two thirds of the New Testament, I really feel like the, the ratio that we're, the way we're doing it is balanced properly, which is heavy on Jesus. And a sprinkling of Paul. It feels like that's the way the New Testament, even though Paul has a bulk of the writing, um, Paul's not inviting anybody to follow him. Paul's not inviting anybody to be his disciple. Um, he's not saving people. Jesus is all of those things. So that's kind of why I didn't think of it that way when we went into it, but it's kind of why most of our stuff is focused, I think, on Jesus and his teachings and, his, and the words about him. And now Paul has has made more sense. Um, let me give you an update on where I am with that journey, the Paul and Jesus journey. Um, Paul is supremely judicial. He speaks in legal tones. He talks about justification. He talks about redemption. He talks about condemnation. These are legal courtroom words. He talks about accounting, things being counted to you, accounted to you, legal terms. Um, he's unlike Jesus. Jesus doesn't speak as much in legal terms. For Jesus, he speaks in a little more medicinal terms. Jesus comes to be a healer, to bind up, to set at liberty, to um, be a physician for the sick because the sick need a physician, he says. And I spent most of my grace journey as a Paul guy. And I don't mean I didn't preach Jesus. I've, I've, I've tried to, to, to land on Jesus more than anything I've ever preached. Tried to. Don't know if I've succeeded, but tried to. Um, and I, but in the midst of preaching grace, I become a Pauline guy and, because Paul describes it all. Paul gives all this great language to grace and justification, redemption, sanctification, um, glory, all the things that we like to talk about, Paul gives the language. Jesus gives the action, Paul gives the language. So that's kind of how you can view it. The problem is, is that you can get so infatuated with Paul's language that you forget that Paul's telling you one side of how to handle grace, how to handle this message of Jesus. And Paul's side is decidedly judicial. And if you read nothing but Paul, you come away with the idea that the world has a guilt problem, that everybody's guilty of sin, and therefore they need redeemed from the guilt. 
and that in Christ they can be set free from the guilt. Paul's not wrong. That's not wrong. The world is guilty. Yes, we're guilty of sin and we need redeemed. But Paul doesn't master, he doesn't, he doesn't major in what is Jesus' ministry, that people are sick. They have a disease and they need healed. They need it excised. They need the tumor, the cancer removed. They need the judicial side. We need the judge to go, boom, not guilty. We need that so that our palate is cleansed of guilt and shame. But when we leave the courtroom, we need to meet the doctor at the door who then says, okay, we've got the paperwork. You're free. Congratulations. Now let's talk about those rooms in your heart you're not letting the Holy Spirit do any work in. Now let's talk about the pain you're going through that you won't let him have. Let's talk about the, the shame of that incident that you've pushed off into the corner and that snake's slowly but surely becoming a dragon. And he's ruining your marriage and he's ruining your body and he's ruining your mind. You've got your paperwork. You're not guilty. You'll never be guilty again. Congratulations. Jesus has paid it all. Let's go see the doctor. And so what has happened in my journey is that I appreciate Paul's paperwork. He's the paperwork gospel. Here you go. This is your title deed. You get all this. But having spent so much time with Jesus before we got to Paul, I can't get the image out of my soul that Jesus takes your paperwork, folds it up, puts it in his pocket, and goes, we got that. Now give me your hand. We're gonna go take a journey. <laughs> and that journey is the Christian experience. And this is why I want to follow Jesus. I, I'm hopeful that when you draw your last breath and you move into the eternal, I hope you get 10,000 more chances. I can't prove you get 10,000. I can't prove you get one. I know you get chances here. If I could prove that you get 100,000 chances on the other side, I'd still meet him over here. And I'd meet him over here because I got my paperwork but I've met the doctor enough to know that if you'll let the doctor go to work, he can go to work fixing the things that are hampering your life on this side. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. He didn't say I've come that you might have life and that you might have it eternal, although we know we get eternal life. What Jesus bragged about was I can make your life a life worth living. So for me, Paul is great with his paperwork. Jesus is great with his body work. He goes to work on the body and the soul and the mind, and he never stops. As long as you'll let him. As long as you'll let him. And, and if you resist, he's, he doesn't just knock, you know, stick an elbow in, your, in the side of your head and put his knee on your neck and, and cut out cancers of your soul. He won't do that. It's participatory. It's you let me in. You tell me the truth. We'll go to work on it. You don't want to tell me the truth. You don't have to tell me the truth. We don't have to go to work on it. We're going to get into some of that tonight, and we're going to do it the only way Paul knows really how to do it, which is through allegory, illustration, some of the legal code, and we're going to sprinkle a bunch of Jesus in there to try and come to the bottom of this lesson tonight called the whole armor of God. When you hear the whole armor of God, you've got image of of uh, well, if you've got the if, if if you've been in church settings where they sort of tried to play literal biblical whole armor of God, you, you roll out a knight, 
you know, he's got, he's got the, the chain mail armor on and they got big shields and then they'll bring out a sword and they're swinging swords all over the place and, and there's boots and, you know, and, and, and then you get a sermon on military and filed in formation and how a good soldier leaves home and goes off and serves his king and all, all the stuff that sort of becomes military. Or if it's modern, then a guy comes out in fatigues and a, and a machine gun. and Maybe we roll a tank in the building. I don't know. It, 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 it depends on the budget, I suppose. Um, but there's always some form of military infatuation that gets sold in the Ephesians 6 whole armor of God message. And I want to push back against that tonight. I'll give, I'm going to go ahead and... And give you, the, I don't want to bury the lead here. Um, I, and I'll say this as we get deeper into this tonight. We'll, we'll dig this out a little bit more. But I don't think Paul meant what we think he meant. Um, first of all, two reasons. One, last week I showed you that Paul had already laid this out in a previous chapter called Put Off the Old Man, Put On the New Man. Then he gets to chapter 6 and he goes, Put on the whole armor of God. You, you didn't get the new man illustration? Let's try it with military stuff. Put Because there's stuff you need to put on now that you're a believer. Okay. That's one reason I don't think he meant what we think he meant. But um, the other is the way Paul lays this out, the way Paul sets this up, I think this is Paul heading towards goodbye. I mean, he says goodbye a few verses after this. He's literally closing his letter. And he's got a few thoughts in his head. And he jots them down. And he jots them down out of order. And he jots them down as verses he's heard over the years, predominantly from Isaiah. And he starts quoting them and dropping them in at the end of the Ephesians letter. And I have no doubt in my mind, and I know I could be wrong about this, but I still have no doubt in my mind that I'm right. So for what that's worth, but I have no doubt in my mind that Paul did not think he was writing for you. Okay. I can't prove that, but I don't think he, I think he was writing for the church at Ephesus. It had never crossed his mind that people 20 centuries later on a country from the other side of the globe, speaking a language he's never heard is going to read his letter and assume what we assume. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't read it. And it doesn't mean we don't take theology from it. But let's also not assume that Paul sat down and had a master class on military garb and how every Christian needs to systematically put on their armor lest they get destroyed by the devil. Do not believe that's what he's trying to do. And I want to investigate what it might be. Let's go to the first three verses. Ephesians 6, 11, 12, 13. Put on the, we did this verse last week. In fact, we did the, the, the first two verses last week, but I'm going to read them again because there's a therefore right there at 13. And I refuse to start on a therefore because if you start on a therefore, you don't know what it's there for. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, in light of that information, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And I stop here. There's, uh, of course, a lot of work that we can do to try to understand that other dimension, that other kingdom. I want you to notice, I'm just going to point a couple of things out because we did some of this last week, but I want you to notice the rulers of the darkness of this age. That's a, that's a phrase that the New Testament writers use again and again and again. This age. And that's a time period. That is a, um, not on the clock, not on a calendar, but, a, but a, a different system, a different way of living. And so 
Paul is looking at the age he's in and realizing that the wrestling match they're going through is against, I think Walter Wink called this, the powers that be. So Paul's talking about wrestling against the powers that be. Not physically, but the powers that be in the system. And, and this, he didn't use the word system, like, but it would be closer to what we would use. Is This is the system that we're dealing with. And the systems of the world have powers behind them. They have, they have authority. And that the battle of the believer then is against the systems of this world and the things that are being pushed off on us so our battle doesn't fall in the dimension or the realm of the natural. And then also, um, take up the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And so this has been used in some ways as an eschatological statement. Like Paul is saying there's a day coming and there's going to be this great battle against the people of God and you need to prepare for it. And that has caused us to teach the whole armor of God as sort of a pre-rapture, pre-coming of Jesus, systematic putting on because you're in the last days, times are getting worse, everything's going to hell, you people aren't going to make it if you don't put on the whole armor of God. And that's how when we drag the knight out and the soldier out and roll the tank in, that's what we're doing. We're teaching people how to go fight the powers of darkness. And we don't have any problem identifying them. And they're always natural. You know, they're, they're the other group, the other side of the political aisle, the people that live over on that other, in that other country, those who disagree with our theology. There's always people to shoot in, in that mindset. But I don't think Paul's being eschatological. I don't think Paul is predicting a day that is coming that the Ephesian church needs to be ready for. And the reason I don't is go back to Ephesians 5. Let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. So contextually, same book. We were here, it was weeks ago. 5, 15, and 16. See that you walk circumspectly. Wise, don't waste time. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeem the time because the days are evil. So he's already laid out the fact that we're not talking about an e just an evil day that is to come, some moment on the calendar, but we're talking about the world in which you live. So once again, just as Paul had put off, put on, now put on the armor of God, he's just changed illustrations. I think once again, the whole armor of God is another way of saying, don't be, a, don't be foolish, redeem the time. Use your time wisely. Pay attention to the evil day. It's not something you're coming up on. It's something you're in. And I don't think it's changed. I know it's a couple thousand years later. But because we live in a world that is dominated by the systems of this age, we are always in evil days. And, and I don't mean that evil is trumped good or triumphs over good. Not at all. But in this illustration... We're in days where evil is at work. And that's why we need that whole armor of God. Spiritual warfare. That's really what you're talking about when we get into the whole armor of God. Is what is this thing of spiritual warfare? And you got a, a, a lot of ways to go about this. You got a lot of books written on it. You got whole commentaries that are designed towards it. Going on the attack. 
beating up the devil, casting out darkness. It almost always tilts militant. It almost always tilts loud. It almost always tilts ascetic. In other words, strip yourself of flesh and stuff, get isolated with God to where there's nothing left of you, and then you're able to put on all of this armor and then go to war against the devil. And it doesn't take very long when you get in the spiritual warfare mindset that you become convinced that Jesus didn't win all of this at the cross, but that you've got to go win all of this by casting this out, laying hands on that. And I, I tread very carefully here because I don't want to in any way come across as thinking that we don't lay hands on people and we don't pray for things. Of course we do. But we need to change this mentality about spiritual warfare in which Jesus didn't actually conquer anything at the cross. He just gave us the equipment to conquer stuff at the cross. And now we've got to go out and take over all of this stuff. And you're not too many baby steps away from taking spiritual warfare and turning it into physical warfare. I've watched it happen in the church my entire life to where if we, it, isn't manif it isn't manifesting quickly enough in the spirit, so we pick up the equipment of the world and we pick up the equipment of power and authority and start to do warfare that way. And it goes from being something invisible and something I can pray about to being something very visible and something I can be involved in. And we tilt towards it being, we want things to be physical, visible and things we can be involved in. This is a lot easier. You don't need faith. Did you get that? You don't need faith if it's physical and you can be involved in it. You just need sight. You need faith if it's something you can't see and something you believe is real and, and is necessary, but it's not something you can get you can be aided by the equipment of the world and by the powers of the situation. Paul tries to be very clear up front. It's not flesh and blood. It's not in the natural realm. And in case he wasn't clear enough there, let's let him be clear to his Corinthian letter. So is Paul interpreting Paul? 2 Corinthians 10. I, just, I wanted to use his other quote-unquote spiritual warfare passage. This is 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 4, 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not... Okay, I want to pause. You know how to read, so of course you're going to read ahead. But I, I just, I want you to think about that first verse, that fifth verse. It's our first verse. It's the fifth verse in the chapter. It's not in the flesh. I cannot stress enough how from the time of Jesus until the middle of the fourth century... I, I can't overstretch this. I'm not saying it loudly enough. From Jesus to the middle of the fourth century, the church doubled down on we do not believe in war. We are peaceful people. We do not pick up the sword. We do not learn to defend ourselves. We do not learn to attack. I can't, I can't say this enough. It's not as if it was a pocket here or there. It was the message. It was what they had. And you can say, well, we don't take everything the early church had to say. Absolutely we don't. We don't believe everything the fathers said. Of course we don't. Because if you follow the wrong one, you end up with some of the garbage we still believe. 
I mean, if the church had followed Origen more than it followed Augustine, we wouldn't have original sin. Because it's not like the Bible has that phrase in it, but that's where we landed. Okay, that's enough of that. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to be in those weeds. Um, so the, the thought process of Paul, I know it's easy to segment this verse and go, well, what Paul's talking about is he's talking about our spiritual warfare isn't in the natural. Of course he is, but he uses language that all Christians were using. We don't fight in the flesh. You strike me on the cheek, I turn to you the other one. I pray for my enemies. I do good to people that persecute me. Because there's no other way around that. So my battle's not in the flesh. The weapons of my warfare are not carnal. Please remember this word, carnal. Because carnal is not sin in the way that we think of it. That guy's carnal. It's, It's the lack of spiritualism. It's the lack of being spiritual. To be spiritual Versus being carnal. Paul, one time to the Romans, says to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be carnally minded then is to think outside of of associating with the Holy Spirit. It's to use your own wisdom, ability, whatever. So that's carnal. So our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Look at that phrase. Casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So for Paul, spiritual warfare happens predominantly in here. Okay. That's his Corinthian letter. Bring your thoughts into the obedience of Christ. Lay down your carnality. Stop thinking you can defeat this thing in the realm of the natural and realize that it only comes in the realm of the spiritual. Then when you get to the, the Ephesians letter and Paul starts to talk about the power of God, weapons of our warfare, once again, we're not fighting in the flesh. Go ahead, put on the whole armor of God. What would the armor of God look like? Because you know what the armor of a Roman soldier looks like. Go, but what would the armor of God look like? What are the things that you and I wear? Okay, before I get into that, let me, let me try to deal... Real quick with that idea of strongholds. You're pulling down strongholds in verse 4. This is something you need to to remember every time you read the New Testament. You really need this tonight. Um, It's easy to forget that you're dealing, when you're dealing with Paul, you're dealing with a man who has as high a working knowledge of Jewish writings as anybody on the planet probably in his day. And he's not someone who has just heard it word of mouth, which is pretty rare. Um, he's someone who's actually read it and studied it. Now, the reason I say that's pretty rare, all the way up until the Middle Ages, particularly the first several hundred years of the church, we, we have people who wrote, this is kind of a cool study. You get to the third century and we have people who are writing things down about their faith and they're quoting verses. And the fun part about second and third century writings is how much they misquote the Bible because they've never read it. And it's like the, it's like the spiritual game of telephone. You know, someone whispered in their ear what Isaiah said, and then they whispered it in their ear what Isaiah said. And by the time you get to the 50th person, Isaiah didn't say that. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you start to read some of those statements from those early writings of how much of it had sort of fallen through the cracks. And so I just, that, that hit me this week as I was reading that and thought, hmm, that's what's so curious then about watching someone like Paul. That's why the Holy Spirit chooses Paul. 
So you get a man who's learned in the old, in the old text. So he's not just someone who heard it, but he's someone who saw it. And so when Paul writes, he can, Revelation's this way too. Whoever writes Revelation, which we know is someone named John, whoever writes Revelation has a superb knowledge, particularly of the book of Ezekiel, like uncanny. The stuff he pulls from Ezekiel, he's just pulling all of these images and stories and transplanting them into Revelation. So Paul does this constantly. So what you do when you read Paul is get inside the mind of a man who had the Hebrew scriptures as his foundation and he's picking them. He's just reaching over there and he's grabbing them in real time. A lot of times is the way he writes. It's like he's not got a software program. We can write five paragraphs, save it, go back tomorrow, clean up three sentences. Really? I mean, he sits down and writes. This is why some of his books kind of do this. Like if you follow Paul's train of thought, it's that and then circle a couple times and, and then and, and then lands and it, Romans is a wild is wildness it's that running around like you're chasing a rabbit and that's Paul freeform thinking he's just allowing this comes out this comes out this comes out and then boom he'll land on an answer um, maybe when Paul talks about pulling down a strongholds he has this kind of idea in mind Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9 the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. This is Jeremiah talking in the early stages of Jeremiah. He's trying to explain to the, the reader his whole ministry. This is who I am. The Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. The Lord said to me, behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. Pretty fascinating. That's quite a call. Look at your ministry. What you get to do? You set you over the nations, over the kingdoms, to root out, pull down, destroy, throw down, build and plant. Sounds like he's got some, he's got some authority. He got some spiritual warfare. He needs a whole armor of God, right? I mean, tip, this is the, this is Jeremiah. Paul, Paul knows this guy. Paul's read this. He would understand this. Here's something to think about. Jeremiah never actually tears anything down. He never actually builds anything up. Not in the physical sense. He has a rule over nations. It's not like he's King Jeremiah. He doesn't knock down city walls. He doesn't bring down governments. So did God fail? Did God not know what he was talking about in Jeremiah chapter 1 when he told Jeremiah he was going to do that? Well, he didn't do it in the fleshly, carnal sense. That's why I asked you to remember the word carnal. He didn't do it in the sense of the natural. This doesn't mean that the verse is incorrect. It means that it's speaking of a different type of building up and a different type of tearing down. Jeremiah does prophesy destruction. And then Jeremiah prophesies restoration. His prophetic voice tears down and builds up. And I ask, could this be the way that we bring down strongholds? So when Paul talks in that kind of tear down, build up language, he's thinking about Jeremiah, a guy who didn't tear anything down in the natural. But he spoke the word of God and he destroyed old mindsets. That's the prophetic imagination was to say to Israel, you got to change the way you think, man. You got to change the way you conduct yourself. You got to change the way you're living your life. And if you don't, there's going to be hell to pay. There's going to be bad stuff happens. And I'm begging you to change. And sometimes, well, in Jeremiah's case, they almost never did. He's one of the most unsuccessful prophets in the entire Bible. Some have said Jeremiah is the longest recorded ministry in the Bible that had no converts. It's, it's true. 
I mean, his story's incredible, and he just keeps coming back for more. I mean, he just keeps going back into the arena and trying it again because he had that word spoken over him. I'm going to put you over nations. You're going to pull down. You're going to build up. But he never pulled down and built up other than he kept pulling down ideologies and pulling down mindsets. And as you get to the end of the book of Jeremiah, his voice turns hopeful. He starts to prophesy about the restoration of Israel. Do you know where our new covenant prophecy comes from? And in those days, I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, and they shall no longer teach one another. And I shall be every one of them. I shall be their God and their sins and their iniquities. I mean, Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah building up you. The book of Hebrews reaches back to Jeremiah and quotes that in Hebrews 8, lays it out as the constitution of the new covenant, like the bill of rights, rather, of the new covenant is Jeremiah's build up prophecy. So in a very real sense, I think Paul's reaching back into the only thing he knows. That's how we do warfare, is that we use our mouths wisely and we live our lives for him. And in that, we tear down old ways of thinking and we tear down old strongholds. And then we build them up prophetically and we build people up with love and we build them up with hope and I see a lot of spiritual warfare and I don't see a lot of that. I don't see a lot of changing mindsets with our words and building people up with our words. That's the kind of warfare we need. We truly need spiritual warfare. But a lot of what's getting passed off as spiritual warfare is physical warfare with a couple verses. And then it's masked as spiritual warfare because it's aggressive. And yet, as you'll find before we're finished, you only get one weapon in the whole armor of God. And you don't even get to hold it. You'll find that. Well, I won't really land on that till next week, but that's, that's an important part. So let's go back. Let's go back to Ephesians 6. And here's what I want to do. I, I want to just walk you through all the way through to 17. And, and then we're going to make some comments. And then we're just going to kind of run away from this screen-wise. And I'm just going to work through the weaponry. It's all defensive because you're just standing there, by the way, having done all to stand, you just stand there because why? Because you don't actually win anything. Jesus has paid it all, right? You, you are standing in his victory. what did we say last week? What was the Capon quote? I'll, I'll ruin it because it's, it's not going to be ideal me to try to wing it, but <laughs> this is the gist of this is the part that always stands out to me is he he we offer our lives to God because he can do more with the death of Jesus than he can do with the life we have to offer in reality is it's not about what I can offer in my life it's what he gives in his death in his death Christ wins all I do to to win is get into his death just step into what he has done and live there because life comes out of that let's read it and then we'll work on it therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand stand therefore so you go it's a kind of odd period at the end of verse 13 right having done all to stand stand therefore um well i think we did it because we didn't know what else to do because paul didn't use periods like the greek First century, they don't use periods and commas and colons and semicolons and exclamation points. They just write. They just go at it. And 
so we don't really know where the commas go, but no matter where you break it, it's this thought. So that you can withstand, withstand the evil day that's coming and having done all to withstand it, stand then. Having done everything you can to withstand, then stand there. What can you do to withstand? You can put on the whole armor of God. Having done all to withstand the evil day, what, what, what all do you do? You just put on the armor. You put on the armor, that's all you can do to withstand the evil day. Having done that, just stand there. And here's what you'll look like when you stand there. You'll gird, you'll gird your waist with truth. You'll put on the breastplate of righteousness. You'll have shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with you, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. About 15 years ago, 15, 17 years ago, I had just begun to really walk into a revelation of grace. Grace chased me long before I... Grace was chasing me uh, long before I grasped it, I guess. Um, when I started to grasp it as a truth and then preach it, I tried to re-preach everything I'd ever heard through a lens of grace. I, mean, I just went through my Bible and went, all right, let's do that one again. You know, just re-preach that with grace. And I did a whole series on the whole armor of God. I still have that series. I still, it's still on my website, um, like on CD set that you can purchase because, you know, people love CDs. Um, but this was 20, you know, this was 15 years ago. So, um, I went back and listened to that in a long, long time. I'm kind of scared to, but um, no. Now, it was grace. It was grace-based, but it was, it was me trying to put grace into my old way of thinking about the whole armor of God, which was piece by piece, something you put on through prayer, perseverance. And so my, I shifted then in that, in that grace, and, and just I don't really know how I got each piece on there, but I, I took the whole thing super serious as far as really emphasizing the piece of armor, where it was on the body, how it was used. Um, I'm not so sure. In, in fact, this is something I sat and thought about today that I wanted to share with you. Paul probably didn't put a lot of thought into this list. Um, he seems to list armor that he's heard before in his Jewish reading of Scripture. We're going to work on this in a minute. And he lays it out in an unorganized fashion. Like, for example, he puts salvation near the end of the list. I mean, shouldn't you open with, put on the helmet of salvation? Well, you probably would if you were trying to lay this out as a systematic theology for how you're supposed to go face the world. Like when you get saved, you do the first thing first. And then you go and you do the second thing second. And he doesn't write it that way. He writes it more like, do this, do this. Oh, by the way, do that. Oh, you know, above all, do this. And then make sure you got that. And then, you know, put this on too. And it's, just, it's really just Paul heading towards the end of the letter going, this is what a Christian looks like. This is not what a super Christian looks like. This is what a Christian looks like. This is what it would mean to follow Jesus. I mean, his intent seems to be to tell them what it means to follow Christ. And he uses a culture that understands military garb. So for Paul, you're covered over in the things that matter, but you're only covered over in the things that matter. That's why you put on the whole armor of God. You don't put on anything else. You're covered over in the stuff that matters. And for Paul, what matters? Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Holy Spirit. Are those the only six things that matter? See how weird we can get? Like, you know, we, we get, and this is what we do when we study this stuff super intently, is we land on just these, nothing else. Um, like, Paul has righteousness and 
peace in here, but what about joy? Remember Romans 14. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In this list, he's got righteousness, peace, and the Holy Spirit, but not joy, because joy must not be part of your whole armor of God. See how weird we can get? I mean, Paul's simply listing off the things that, as far as he's concerned, if you're going to make it, you need to recognize who you are in Christ. And you don't need to go to war. You need to go stand in Christ. And recognizing who you are and what you are in Christ is part of the process of what you have. So let's deal let, truth, righteousness, gospel, peace, faith, salvation, the Holy Spirit. I want to deal with them. And I'm just throwing them out in the same order he did. Again, I don't think he was trying to, I don't think he could have fathomed there would be six week sermon series on the six things he picked that are the things you need in your, in your whole arm, your military garb. So where does he get this stuff? Well, he gets part of it by looking at a soldier. Who knows? Maybe he's sitting there by a window when he's writing this and a troop walks by outside of the window and he goes, oh, that's, you know, I'm going to write some of this stuff down for my Ephesian believers. But better than that, he gets it from Scripture. Here's an example. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. Before you look at that, I'm going to read it to you from the New King James. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. This is the reign of the rod of the stem of Jesse. This is a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 11 that says righteousness will be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. However, that's English from Hebrew. You realize that. Your Old Testament is English from Hebrew. Paul had Greek from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew. This is the Septuagint right here. Isaiah 11.5. And he will be girded at the waist with righteousness and enclosed with truth at his sides. I think this is, Paul knows this verse. So when Paul sits down to write the whole armor of God, he's got a Greek Septuagint. That's what he's been reading his entire scriptural career. And so he just grabs the, script, the verse he remembers from Isaiah 11.5. And part of the loins are he's enclosed with truth at his sides. Let me talk about truth for just a second. And I... I know I run the risk of getting crazy with these, and this is the one of all of them. There's, there's two I really want to say a lot about. This one and the gospel of peace. So I'll warn you up front. So stay with me for a second. Um, I don't want to get overboard on why truth is the waist and not the breastplate. And why isn't truth your helmet? Shouldn't it protect your head, not your loins? Um, again, I think we put way too much into to where they are. But the reality is, is that Paul saw truth as vital to the Christian experience. I have been more convinced of this in, in my recent journeys through the word and through life than any other time in my life. That I really believe that the key, to me, this is as close as Paul gets to sounding like Jesus. And what I mean by that is Jesus talks truth all the time. He's telling people to tell the truth. He's calling himself the way, the truth, the life. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. And in that, he's always confronting people and demanding them to be honest. And the worst thing you can do in a conversation with Jesus is refuse to tell the truth in, in the Gospels. The, young, the rich young ruler tries it. Good master, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, don't call me good. You don't, you don't want to go down this road. That's the warning. 
Don't start with good, because that's going to be a lie. Okay? So let's start with truth. Push your lie out of the way. Start with truth. What do you think you ought to do? How about the commandments? And the kid goes, I did those. And Mark says, and then Jesus loved him. There's a weird moment there in Mark where it goes, and then Jesus loved him. Like at that moment, I think Jesus smiles at him and says, okay, you did them. Good job. Um, There's one problem. Go sell whatever you have. Come follow me. And the Bible says the man goes away sorely distressed because he has great wealth. And so he brought a lie to Jesus, which was that I want to inherit eternal life. I want what you have to offer. And when Jesus says, do you really? Here's what it would cost. Because well, I, don't want, I don't want it that bad. Jesus always demands truth. What you give him just must be truth. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be moral. It just can't be a lie. Because he can't work with the lie. He is truth. He can't work around the lie. He is truth. My favorite is, is the woman with the issue of blood who reaches through the crowd and grabs the hem of his garment and then shrinks away because she feels something happen and the bleeding dries up like that. And Jesus stops, massive crowd, turns and goes, who touched me? And you know the story. And Peter goes, oh, what do you mean who touched me? Everybody touched you. There's a big crowd. And Jesus goes, no, this is different. Power left my body. I mean, I felt this. I just had an encounter with someone and they pulled something by faith out of me and I'd like to meet them. And so the woman, maybe she slips her hand up. (laughs) And the Bible says that she stepped forward and she looked Jesus in the eye and she told him the whole truth. And after she got done telling him the whole truth, he said to her daughter, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. And that's fascinating to me. She could have just got her miracle and turned around and ran off. But she needs more than a miracle. She needs an identity. And the only person, the first person Jesus ever called daughter in the scripture is that woman. And what a, what a moment. And it only comes on the backside of truth. So I think this entire journey with Jesus is to get us down to the real self, really who we are. This is why I said to you earlier, Paul's judicial, Jesus is medicinal. Paul gives you the paperwork. Jesus goes to work (laughs) on you. Jesus spots whatever it is inside of you and says, let's talk. You and me. What do you want to tell me? And you go, well, I don't want to tell you anything. And he goes, okay. You don't have to tell me anything. You're still the righteousness of God. You're still loved. You're still forgiven. You don't lose your legal status because you refuse to let Jesus into the room. The rooms of your heart where you've been wounded and you've been hurt and you've been lied to and you've been crushed and you've wounded other people. And you don't have to let him in there. The Holy Spirit's never going to stop probing with love the areas in which we're not honest with ourselves. So let me, no ambiguity about it. Let me just land here and move on. When Jesus' fan is in his hand, and he blows the chaff into the furnace to burn it with unquenchable fire, I think he's doing that in you right now. And everything he's burning with unquenchable fire is whatever is not true about you. And if you'll let go of what's not true about you, he'll burn that too. And if you want to hold on to it, you can hold on to it while the hurricane of his love blows. 
but it will not stop. He will continue to go to work on us. And I think that's incredible. And if we'll let him, he'll, he'll do all that is in his power to bring the life of his father into the death of who we are. And got all that out of truth? Well, that's as good as Paul can do. Gird your loins with truth. Okay, what's that mean? Oh, okay, let's come here, Jesus. Show us what truth looks like. And, and that's maybe if you, need, if you need the armor to coincide with body parts, your loins is where the next generation's coming from. So whatever you take into that, that's a lie, is going to affect your tomorrows. I can promise you the lie affects your tomorrows. The same way the truth will affect your tomorrows. And so go to work on it. Um, the breastplate of righteousness. Listen, righteousness is God's qualities imputed to us. Christ was made to be sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Paul might have been pulling from this. Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. Look at that, just like Ephesians 6. And the helmet of salvation. I've already given you the text for helmet of salvation right there. Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Paul leaves that out. When he quotes the whole armor of God, he doesn't put a cloak on you. That'd be kind of cool. You got a cape? Yeah, no cape. Paul leaves the cape off and he doesn't put on the garments of vengeance. Why? Because zeal is not, zeal and vengeance are not part of what it is to be a child of God. I don't mean you don't have zeal and you're not sometimes full of vengeance, but it doesn't identify you as one of his. So I think it's kind of cool how Paul cherry picks the verse. Why wouldn't he? Part of it's not what you are in Christ. You don't run around full of vengeance. That's one of the things that ought to be swallowed up in the truth about who Christ is. Zeal's not a defining moment of who you are. You're going to have moments where you have zeal, but it's not a characteristic of who you are as a child of God. And then the gospel of peace. Paul says, I think New King James shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's a kind of a wordy way of saying when you put your shoes on, make sure your footwear will take you to a place you can present peace. It's wordy even in the Greek. It's a, it's, it's a little bungled. Yet another reason why I think Paul's just sort of running, you know, throwing some stuff out there. But he's pulling verses he knows. Here's another one. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so the prophetic language has shoes on your feet that bring the gospel of peace. I want to stay on this one just a little bit because this one is a pet peeve of mine. If it isn't peace, it isn't the gospel. Plain and simple. It's good news of the gospel. Gospel's good news. It's good news of peace. It's never good news of anything else. So peace is God's not at war with you. God's not mad at you. God's not against you. You go, you just told me he's got a fan and he's blowing the chaff. Yes, he is. And he's on your side in it. He only blows the chaff to separate what's true from you with what's a lie about you. It's not God being against you. It's God being for you. Because if he were against you, he'd let the wheat and the chaff just be there together. He'd let you remain exactly in that state. He doesn't love you less because of what you are, but he walks into the midst of who you are. And he, he lays out for you the peace 
that is known and knowing Him. When you, if you're going to share the gospel, and you share it every day, it's just that sometimes we share it and we don't realize what we're sharing. So we're, we're, we're sharing negativity and anger, malice, and quoting every verse we can find that we think points out people's sin. Change your shoes. I mean, like spiritually, change your shoes. Like, put some shoes on. Paul, Paul basically says, put shoes on that allow you to preach the gospel of peace. I think if he had a follow-up, he'd go, if you're not preaching the gospel of peace, just change shoes. Like, what's wrong with you? Why are you going without the gospel of peace? What, what is the alternative to the gospel of peace? Well, I don't like to, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to point out the opposites of the gospel of peace. I have to really deal with me. I have to go to the Lord a lot on watching and listening to the gospel, to the gospel. And it's not Jesus. And I get carnal. Okay, quickly. And I, um, I'm just telling you, I, 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 so I struggle. And so it's a challenge for me to not turn around the next time I preach and go, hey, I want to show you, I want to tell you what I heard this week. And I used to do it. When I first started coming into Revelation of Grace, I would spend 20 minutes of every sermon telling you garbage I'd heard last week. You know, why it was wrong. Um, what do I know? I, I can't, I'm not out to prove others right or wrong. It's not the journey of the gospel. Um, but I, I struggle with words that put people under condemnation. I struggle with words that are void of Jesus. To think that you can sit through a whole sermon and not hear about Christ bugs, bothers me. Um, you know, words that um, point you away from peace and into vengeance. Um, I'm saddened by the church in America. I'm saddened that you can't belong in churches now because your political opinions are different. I'm saddened that you will be disfellowshipped if you tell your ideas because we can't sit in the same room with that heretic that believes that way, votes that way, thinks that way, feels that way. We're running an entire, I know we don't see it. I'll just, let me just be blunt. We don't see it in the South. As much, but I can tell you, we're running off an elderly generation of people in a lot of churches in America because they can't be at home with their political opinions in the church we've created. So they got to go somewhere else. And we've completely lost a young generation that just are like, I can't, I can't go set through this. I can't go set and have this presented as if it's the gospel. It's one thing to have something said to me in a poli-sci class. It's another thing to have something said to me on a YouTube video or to get into a conversation with a dude at the barber shop. This is life. We don't agree. People are gonna get vehement. They're gonna tell you what they think. Great, but to go into the house of sanctuary where the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus is a sacramental Eucharist of thank thanking God for his brokenness for us and the gospel of peace can't be found because I gotta wade through all this other stuff, God have mercy on us. God have mercy on us. We gotta find a way to bring, to put the shoes on of the gospel of peace. 
And this is why I'm hearing it more and more and more and more and more in my spirit of the Holy Spirit saying, it's just nearly time to put up or shut up then on planting something in which the gospel of peace is what the, the, is the sound of the house. It's because you can't have hope for the next generation without the gospel of peace. There's no hope. We're not going to solve this by voting right. We're not going to solve this with another politician, with another law, with another rule. These are not the gospel. We're not going to pass the right law that restores the spirit of God to who we are. Only the gospel of peace. All right. Shield of faith. Well, maybe he was thinking something like this. Psalm 3.3, you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Or maybe he was thinking of Psalms 28.7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted him. I'm helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I praise him. Or maybe he was thinking of Psalms 33.20, our soul waits for the Lord and our help is our shield. And I stopped there because I could do this all night long because Psalms is full of God is my shield, God is my shield, God is my shield, God is my shield. Paul says your shield is faith, but for Paul, it's the same thing. It is belief in that God is good and he has your back. And he goes, your shield of faith is that you trust that God guards you. And then the sword of the spirit. I want to close with the entire 149th Psalm. Don't freak out. Psalms aren't that long. This is nine verses. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. And a two-edged sword in their hand. Oh boy. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints, praise the Lord. Psalm 149 has been equipment. This is the weaponization of the Bible. Psalm 149 has been new covenant believers' equipment for hurting people with weapons. This honor have all of the saints of God. It is my honor to go, go, go. Back one screen. It is my honor to have a two-edged sword in my hand. Next verse. Next screen. To execute vengeance on the nation and punishments on the people. This is what happens if you don't go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Let Jesus be the interpreter of your Bible. Because until you get to Jesus, you might mistake that the job that you have is to hold the sword. And then you get to Jesus. And Jesus will tell you, sheath that sword, permit even this. This isn't how we work. When Paul gives you the sword of the Spirit, you know what the sword of the Spirit is in Ephesians 6? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul doesn't even allow the Ephesians 6 believer to put the two-edged sword of vengeance in their hand and go be the judgment of the nations because he's had a revelation of resurrected Christ. Next week, we're going to look at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're going to see that sword in Hebrews. We're going to see that sword in Revelation. We're going to see that sword in Jesus. And Paul doesn't change it. 
those swords become the sword of Ephesians chapter 6. All right? This is all set up to get you ready for the sword of the Spirit. The whole armor of God, it is your equipment. It's already your equipment. You don't have to beg God for righteousness, beg God for faith, beg God for the Spirit. You already have all these things. Stand in them. Start standing in them. Put, put them on and stand there in the victory that is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and I thank you tonight for this wonderful chance to share with your children. And I, I, I have, as is the way I do, I wrestle some of this out. I wrestle it out with you, and then I get up here and wrestle it out again. And I pray that as we do that, you've helped us to land our foot on some things that will be of benefit to your people where we haven't. I pray that that seed will not grow. And I'm asking, Father, for your blessing on this word. I don't think that I never assume we're going to say something's going to change something. But I've known from experience that every now and then we say something that changes something for someone. And then that change goes a long way. If that's happened, then Father, let that take root in Jesus' name. Amen.